hey, it's Ian Altman. Do you want to connect with other people just like you looking to take your expertise and your sales to the next level? Then check out the Same Side Selling Academy. It's all integrity-based. We've got instructional videos. It's a private community in Facebook, so you can share ideas and collaborate with other people. Twice a month, I'll do a Facebook Live addressing specific questions so you can hear the actual language that I believe will help you drive success. And then we'll have extraordinary guests on on a regular basis as well to add additional value. The charter and founding members get a deal and a half, really just appreciating you for asking the questions, suggesting that I offer this stuff, and almost apologetically because it took me so darn long to launch it. So we hope to see you there at the Same Side Selling Academy. Just visit samesidesellingacademy.com or ianaltman.com and you'll see it all there. Hey, it's Ian Altman. My guest today is John Cousineau. Now, John is the CEO of Amicus.net. John spent 35 years improving business results that provide improved practices for businesses that are trying to grow. And for the last 16 years, he's been building his firm solution at Amicus.net with B2B business development teams. And if you want to think of it like it's almost like they have the insight to the money ball like results for business development teams. So they give them analytics like you might get from a Fitbit on the health of their practices. It's amazing insight. We're going to talk about a wide variety of issues and really pay special attention to the part we talk about curiosity in the business. You're going to love this discussion with John Cousineau. Hey, John, how are you? Fine, thanks, Ian. How are you doing? I am fantastic. So let me ask you this. What's the what's the biggest mistake that you see businesses make when it comes to their sales improvement? When they're trying to improve their sales and business development, what's the biggest mistake you see them making? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think the biggest mistake I see them making is that they think um, – in using our technology, uh, that they've solved the problem, um, and and the, and that you know that everybody's equipped to be successful, and therefore success should naturally happen. And that, what they kind of miss is the thing that parents know, which is you have a child, and you can't just assume they're going to have a good life. You have to be actively involved in helping to see that it happens. <laughs> it, it just doesn't happen automatically. And uh, so I, I just think that there's a there's this notion that if we have a sales performance problem, there is a way in which I can put in place everything I need to for it to automatically happen. And, and, and part of, and part of your technology is to help people understand what behaviors and what patterns are leading to success and which ones aren't. Correct? Absolutely. But here's the trick. I can show that to you on screen, much like a Fitbit will help you understand whether you're being active enough to you know, improve your health. But at a deeper level, it raises a ton of questions, which you need to spend time talking about as a team. If you're ever going to get as much of a performance lift as collectively you're capable of producing. And it's funny how companies are very keen to see sales performance improve and yet sometimes reluctant to spend the time in structured conversations to discuss what next moves they're going to make to drive endlessly 
to a better result than they're used to seeing. Yeah, and so, I, and by the way, John, I think I think the I think the key there is that you're giving them insight into what behaviors generate results, but from that, if they don't take the time to reinforce with their team, to teach, to mentor, to coach them, to develop those habits, to adjust their behaviors, to discover the information that they should be curious about, then it's kind of like um, it, it's it's kind of like if a smoke detector goes off in your house because there's a fire, it doesn't mean the fire gets put out. Exactly. That's a, that's a great analogy. Now, now, now I know the house is on fire. Oh, okay, good. I can go back to sleep. No, no, no. You actually need to put out the fire and get out of the house. Yeah. So if, if there's something here that, that I find is the big difference maker, it's organizing the work around having more honest dialogues. And so there's things about agile methods that allow the chance for those honest dialogues to take place. And then what we commend to sales leaders is to use our analytics to essentially anchor the conversation around the reality of how things are going. So in a lot of organizations, what you'll find today, Ian, is that when you you have a meeting, 90% of the time is spent coming to a shared agreement on what reality is. (laughs) And 10% of the time is spent talking about what to do about it. And, and our goal is to say, well, what if you could flip that on its head? Yep, that's great. What if everybody going in had a read on how reality, what reality looks like, at least from their perspective? Now, the other thing we commend as part of encouraging these honest dialogues is that when a sales team gets together for 15 minutes at the end of each day to debrief on how the day went, it's never about how your day went per se. It's about as a team, how did the day go? And so as a team, what you're evaluating is not how much better did John get today than yesterday, but rather as a team, how much better did we get? Now, it might have been because of how John's day went or Bob's, but, you know, that's not the, that's not the issue that we're discussing. Today we're discussing, as we are every day, what little things done differently do we think might make a difference? And you end up with very, very simple rules like, Guys, it's been three days since we've had a conversation from which you produced any notes of anything that we've learned. What's going on? Yeah, I was, I was even thinking if at the end of the day, if we went to people and said, so what did we learn today? You know, that in and of itself might be, well, I learned that when I engage my customers in a topic like this, I get really detailed information from them. Hmm. And, and what can you do with that information? Well, it gives me the ability to better solve their problems. Okay, and how do they respond? Oh, they love it. And then what you want everyone else to go is, oh, so if I'm curious about that, it leads to better discussions. Cool. So it, it, what you have here is the, the opportunity, in my mind, the opportunity to <clears throat> have more honest dialogues because the reality of what we need to be talking about is clear for everybody to see. And everybody's got a slightly different angle on well, what might next might make the difference that we're all looking to see. And before you know it, you've created this environment in which there's a shared curiosity about what small changes you might make to learn more in the conversations that you're having about the issues that are of great, greatest concern to your buyers. And the interesting thing about that is the more you learn about the issues your buyers are most concerned about addressing – 
the easier it is for you to then raise those issues at the front end when you're inviting conversations with strangers in the first place. Yep. So what you set up here is a possibility of not only by, by learning more in the conversations you're having, more buyers will agree to talk to you again, which gets you to second base. But then you also know the, how to swing the bat at home plate when the ball's first pitched to you because you know what issues to suggest to the buyer who you're calling as a stranger. You know, it's often hard to narrow the performance gaps between top reps and the rest of the reps on a team. And when it's possible, it's lucrative. I wanted to share an example with him. I'm just curious, is that an issue for you? Yep. And the interesting thing is when you invite buyers to have conversations about business outcomes that they're responsible for, you, you move from a situation where the buyer is really reluctant to talk to you because they just don't want to talk to a salesperson about the stuff they're selling. Yeah, absolutely. To a situation where, my God, you've raised the issues that I'm responsible for producing better results around. If I don't talk to you, I'm not doing my job, says the buyer. Yep. No, that's that's, that's exactly – I mean, it's very consistent with what we teach in same-side selling, which is this notion of – you start your conversation by saying, "Here are the here here are two or three problems or issues that we address for address for clients with amazing results." But the way we address those isn't necessarily a right fit for everyone. Less than half the people we talk to is it the right fit? So I don't yet know if we can help you. Mm-hmm. But if you're if you're facing those issues, I'm happy to learn more to see if we might be able to help. So people buy when they believe that they have a problem that if they don't fix it negatively impacts their world. Mm-hmm. And if they believe that they will get the results from your solution that they need. Yeah. So, and I think the second half of that story is that if we ignore the culture issue, there's an enormous amount of skepticism out there about the chance that the, the observable problems might in fact ever be fixed. Well, so, so what, so there's two things that happen. One is, well, our problem really isn't, isn't as bad as you think it is, John. That's one side. And the other side is, yeah, you know what, John? Our problem is that bad, but I don't necessarily think that you guys have got some secret sauce that is going to help us solve that. And yeah. even if you did, our people aren't going to listen anyhow. So I don't think it's really going to have an impact. I mean, and by the way, yeah. the people who you have as clients, mm-hmm. I'm betting if you step back and think about it, are the people who actually believed in the problem and actually believe in the results. Yeah, yeah. And when people don't have that, that's that's the gap. So we often yeah. feel like, man, if we tell them, then they'll figure it out. But that's right. usually not the case. It's they right. have to, they have to come to believe it themselves. It's like, you know, if if my doctor says, "Look, Ian, you're you're terribly overweight, and um, you know this is this is not going to end well for you," I'm thinking, yeah, but you know what, my heart's in good shape. You know, yep. my, my blood numbers are good and all this kind of stuff. So what do you know? It Until I believe it, I'm probably not going to do anything to affect change. Yeah. Now, part of that is, for me, it's okay, now I believe it, but man, I've just got to get a hold of my lifestyle and change these things. What are the three things that I'm doing in my life that's causing me to not lose weight? Yeah. And you kind of give people that formula that says, I can tell you which three things, if you change it, you'll get better results. Yeah, the, the flip on that is there's still an enormous fear factor that I might just blow my brains out here. And I've been at this for a very long time since, you know, VP sales, and I'm really not keen to blow my brains out. So my, my 
own observation is that we've, we've developed the diagnostic equipment to make it possible to solve problems that are around forever. But that diagnostic equipment by itself is never going to solve the problem. People need the help of a performance doctor to figure out, you know, what do you think we should do armed with the evidence that if I don't change something here, I am kind of screwed. Yep, absolutely. No, I mean, so that's the assessment tools are out there. Basically, what they do is they tell us, well, based upon the person's preconceived bias who came up with the assessment tool, here are here are where this candidate is strong or weak, or where this individual is strong and weak in terms of their skill set. So, for example, one of the things I teach is that budget is somewhat irrelevant because for the right organizations, if you help them understand that the problem is big enough and that the outcome can be good enough, they'll find the money. And so if I take these assessments, it says, well, he's not comfortable talking about money, which is nothing could be further from the truth. And I say, well, why do they do that? Well, because every time we ask you a question about, do you ask questions about budget? You say no. And I'm like, yeah, of course. Yeah, I think budget's a total waste of time. It's a, it's a, it's a misleading piece of data. So I teach people not to get that. Now, my clients would say, Look, Ian's the kind of guy where if I tell somebody, look, it costs $20,000 for me to come out and speak at your event, and someone says, we only have 18, I say, oh, good news, you only have to find $2,000. <laughs> That's awesome. Good for you. But yeah. the assessment tool gives a little bit of a false indicator. Yeah, just on that assessment issue, by the way, Ian, what's interesting is um, the, the what we've witnessed – is that there is a skill, uh, back to this issue of the sort of going in uh, impression I have about people have to prove how good they are rather than improve how good they are. The interesting thing is the ones who are actually keen to improve how good they are, they have a skill or a mindset in my, in my view that is actually quite important. And I was talking to the CEO of an assessment company about this, and he, he actually started giggling. He said, John, this is hilarious. I go, well, why is that? He said, I had a client CEO yesterday who said to me, I think the assessment is missing. The one thing that we're observing seems to be the big difference maker in our front lines. And the CEO of the assessment company said, what's that? And it was exactly the same word that I had used to the CEO of the assessment company, which was curiosity. The more curious reps are to understand the situations buyers are trying to deal with, the more they learn. Yep, that's yeah, I, I, I teach that all day long, which is look, if if you think your goal is how do I get this person to buy, you lose. If you're curious and really want to understand what problem they're trying to solve, what happens if they don't solve it. And what outcome they're going to consider successful. And you're really curious about that. And you really just want to better understand it to see if you can help. Then you will be wildly successful and you'll never feel like you're selling anything. But you'll be tremendously successful because that curiosity comes through. I mean, it's it's funny. I, I spoke at this event last week. One of the CEOs comes up to me and says, oh, I run this type of business. And I said, oh, that's fantastic. He said, would love to have you come out. I said, you know. I, I got to learn more because you're you're a consumer business, and most often I don't feel I'm the best person to help B two C companies. And the guy spent 15 minutes trying to explain to me why no no all the stuff I talk about would be perfect for his B two C company. And I said, well, 
I can see where it would help, but I also think someone like this, this, or that, these three people are actually better at the consumer side than I am. <laughs> and then he spent another 10 minutes trying to convince me why, no, no, I'm better for him than these other people. And it's just so funny because I'm literally yeah. just trying to figure out, look, yeah. where can yeah. I have the greatest impact or can't I? And I think part of that comes from a mindset of abundance, meaning I don't need the business. So I don't want to work with someone I can't have a great impact for because I'm going to feel like, oh, these poor people paid a lot of money for me and they didn't get results out of it. And I just don't want to be involved in that type of transaction. Right. But if I was hungry for the business, would I have a different perspective? God, I hope not, but maybe I would. Yeah, this is fascinating. I like the concept of a mindset of abundance. Um, if we go back to the issue of learning, um, and we think a little bit about, well, how would we possibly measure if in sales execution we were learning anything? And so what we've done is we've worked backwards from this, if you like, what we view to be the bottleneck, which is that we're not learning enough. And boy, God, if we could learn more, we, we'd probably see better results. So what we've done as an example is we've, we've asked in the, in the way our software works, we've asked our clients to stop taking notes in their CRM uh, because those notes tend to be for the purpose of the rep's boss knowing, oh, John had a conversation with Ian and John's impression is it went great. And Ian and John are going to talk again in two months' time, yada, yada, yada. And so instead of taking notes in the CRM, we've asked them to instead take notes of what they learned in the conversation with the buyer. And the interesting thing is, it's really hard to write down what you learned in a conversation if you didn't learn anything. Interesting. The other thing that's interesting about that is that how do we learn? You know, if you go back to the days when you were sitting in class, and I'm sure you see this in the sessions that you run, people who are actually engaging with the ideas that you're sharing with them are probably taking notes and writing it down. And so we're going back to a habit that we're all familiar with as students of life. You know, we take notes. Yep. So then you know, say, say yourself, okay, so that's an interesting thing. So one of the things we measure is what percentage of all the conversations we're having have we bothered to produce notes for the buyer? So, so by the way, it's, it's, so, it's so funny that, that you say this. So in, in, in the same side selling immersion programs that I teach – Mm -hmm. there, there's, there, there are two elements that we teach. One is this element of the same side quadrant. So the idea is that you, you take a sheet of paper, you draw a vertical line down the center of the page, horizontal line across the center of the page, making four quadrants on the page. In the upper left, we write our notes related to the issue or the high-level idea that the client is interested in talking about. In mm -hmm. the upper right, we make notes about anything related to the impact or relative importance of that of that issue, meaning what mm -hmm. happens if they don't solve this. In the lower left quadrant, we write the word results, which is, look, just because we put forth effort and you pay us doesn't mean it was successful. How would we know six months out, 18 months out, whether or not this was a worthwhile investment? And if you feel like, hey, this is a good idea, in the lower right, we write others impacted, which is all the notes related to who else needs to be involved for this thing to be successful. Who else yeah. is impacted by it? Well, uh, that's all good and well. So we take notes in that format. So now I've got a framework around what type of notes I'm capturing right. and what type of information I need to capture. 
at the end of all this, we have we have a, a model that we refer to as the concise business case or the CBC. Mm-hmm. And the concise business case is a summary of all that information that says, dear Mr. Prospect, I took a bunch of notes during our meeting. Here's what I believe I learned in our call. What mm-hmm. I learned from you is that you have this issue. Here's what happens if you don't solve it. And here's why you said it was so important to solve. If we're successful, here's what it's going to look like at the end of the day. And here's who else needs to be involved. And by the way, to accomplish all that, here's the investment we discussed. And here's what our next steps would be. Yeah. What, what's really interesting about that uh, is that my impression is that buyers will find enormous value in that kind of business case, but they're likely going to get to it through a series of conversations, not one conversation. Correct. And the challenge that creates is that, as an example, buyers are really reluctant to have initial conversations. Uh, The industry norm is about 2 to 4% of buyers, if you call them out of the blue, will agree to have a first conversation with you. Um, And And if you have a first conversation with buyers, that first conversation is typically so bad that very few buyers will ever agree to talk to the same seller a second time. The industry norm there is about 10 to 20 percent. So what we're trying to do is to say, well, what if we could conquer those two problems? What if we can, instead of having a two to four percent norm of buyers agreeing to talk to you for a first time, the norm becomes 10 to 25 percent. Now, that's almost the equivalent of the money ball analogy for the Oakland A's. It's like an on-base percentage. Sure. The challenge is that in sales, if we conquer the on-base percentage issue, we blow our brains out in getting to second base because the conversations are so abhorrently handled, which gets back to the issue, well, what if we change what we do in conversations by taking notes of what we learned? Yep. So what we found is there's... There's virtually a one-to-one correlation between producing notes for a buyer and the buyer agreeing to have a subsequent conversation with you. Absolutely. It's By the way, it's interesting because what I actually do with my clients is because I, I teach them the same note-taking method and sharing back with the client. By the way, it's it's it's, it's really dizzying because when we met, I'm like, wow, you know, I, this guy, John – he sees the world in a very similar way that I do, which by definition means that I think you're brilliant because we always think <laughs> that we're brilliant ourselves and, um, and <laughs> or we're both crazy, but that's okay. So, um, because the people listening to the show already are under the belief that somehow I'm not totally crazy or they are too, in which case we're all in the same club together. And that's great. So the idea though, is that it's not, here's a, here are my notes about why you should buy from us. It's here are my notes about what I learned in our call today, which means you have to have that mindset of your your job is to learn what they're trying to solve, why they're trying to solve it, and what they need as likely outcomes and who else they feel needs to be involved to make this a success. Now, there's an interesting um, dynamic to this, which is I've done research on how executives make and approve decisions. And here's the, here's the dizzying part of it. I put them through a scenario that says someone on your team comes to you to buy this 
arbitrary thing I called a Gesertenblatt. And it costs $20,000, requires no resources whatsoever on, on your part. They give a 10-year guarantee, and it takes them 45 days to implement it. What are the questions you have to ask your employee to either approve or deny their request to buy this thing? And across 10,000 CEOs and executives around the world, they ask the following questions. What problem does this solve, or why do I need it? And what's the likely outcome or result? So what we do with the same side quadrants is we build this framework that says, okay, so now you have a whole dialogue that's centered around understanding what problem they solve, why they need it, and what's the likely outcome or result. So you're feeding them the exact information they need to get approval and buy-in to move forward. Yeah, well, that, and that, this is where it gets particularly interesting, Ian, because most – People doing this work are convinced they know what should work. <laughs> and my view is it may be true, but the world's getting more complex and fast-paced. And the consequence of that is we need to be a little more curious about what actually might work. And we need to approach the work that therefore is being done, to done day to day less as a question about how fast can we do what we are confident should work and more uh, instrumented in a way where it is work that we're doing and we're doing it with purpose, but we're also doing it as an ongoing experiment to figure out what combination of offered results to perceive problems are the ones that the buyers were approaching are most interested in having conversations about. That's exactly it. I mean, I just, I think that whole notion of that curiosity is, is probably one of the, one of the single biggest things that I think the top performers have. Um, and it's what it's, you know, it's, it's interesting that the, the people that do these assessments concluded the same thing which is just that that whole notion of look you know if you're not curious about what's working what isn't i've got some clients who have some people who every time they're having a discussion you can tell they're just intensely curious about what's working what isn't and why so now this is where it gets really interesting because in those kinds of environments when you run a test of something that you're convinced should work and it doesn't work you have a very different reaction than in a situation where going in, you're convinced you know it works, you run the test, it doesn't work, and your answer is, oh, this technology doesn't work for me. And you go, oh, why is that? Well, because what we know it works didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so let me, let me share with you an example. Sure. A global sales meeting down in Silicon Valley. CEO asks me, John, how's, how's our current tactic going? And it was a tactic the sales team had been executing for about five days. And I said, well, uh, it sucks. Uh, this isn't working. And there's, of course, deathly silence in the room. And I said, but there's one exception. And the exception is in Asia. So for whatever reasons, Asia's getting some traction. Vishnu, what the hell are you guys doing over there in Asia? And he says, well, you know, we started running this tactic out on the first day or two. And we thought, you know, ah, this, isn't, this isn't working. But we thought at the core of it was a good idea. 
So we thought we just diddle with it a bit, change slightly who we'd go and knock, whose doors we'd go and knock on. And in this case, they decided to go knock on the doors of CFOs. And all of a sudden, the conversation started happening. CEO leaped out of his chair, said, holy crap, that could work. Says to the head of sales ops, how fast could you pull lists of CFOs in these kinds of target companies? She says, give me 45 minutes. Says to the VP of sales and me, how fast can you guys design the tactic? We said, we need 30 minutes. An hour and a half later, calls were coming into the war room to say it works. What was the difference in Asia? It wasn't. I think the difference in Asia was the head of the sales team. Um, he wasn't going to simply execute that which he was given. He understood the strategy. And when it was clear that in execution, the strategy wasn't producing the kind of conversation yields that everybody was hoping for, he sat back and asked himself, okay, at core, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to invite conversations about the following issues that we believe our customers would be most concerned about. His feeling was those were the right issues, but they were being aimed at the wrong buyer. So he changed who he went, whose doors he went and knocked on. Yeah. So, so, the, so the beauty is that he was curious to say, hmm, you're Precisely. saying to call into this level, but you know what? I wonder what kind of result we would get if we called into this other level. Wow, we get better results. So you know what? Let's shift this a little bit. And everyone else said, no, no. They said just to call the, you know, the IT director. They said just to call the COO. They said just to call the CEO. And darn it, that's what we're going to do. Instead of it's almost the you know, A-B test the world. Look, right. we think this is going to work better, but what about that one? Like, for example, one of, one of the things that I do is in my talks, I used to always use slides, and recently I've moved to no slides. Mm-hmm. And my perception is, wow, this is great for the audience. And every time I've given a talk without slides recently, I will say to them, so how did this work for you? What did mm-hmm. you think – of having this entire program without slides and where do you think slides might have been helpful <laughs> and by the way i'm not you know someone said oh so you're trying to you're trying to get confirmation that you're better off without slides and i said no i'm trying <laughs> to find out if it's actually better for the audience with or without slides because <laughs> i'm comfortable doing it either way i see all the benefits associated with doing it without but i don't want to bias the audience by telling them that Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, here's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, and that's interesting too. I mean, so I'll give you an example of, of, of you know, a personal example of the same kind of concept. Um, everybody learns differently. And, and I actually find that when I'm having a conversation with somebody, if I physically take notes, the conversation isn't nearly as helpful to either me nor the buyer. Because I'm just not, I'm not as actively engaged in the conversation. So my own personal practice is I physically don't take any notes while the conversation is taking place. I just have the blinking conversation. Yep. And then what I do afterwards is I write like a madman and I, I play a game with myself, which is I want to tell my wife tonight who the most interesting person is that I met today. And, and what is it about that person and their situation that seems so damn interesting? Yep. So I almost write these as notes to my wife. 
<laughs> well, it's, by the way, it's interesting that the the slight the slight variation that I do on that is I tell people, look, if you're taking down every single piece of detail, then you're missing some level of engagement in the conversation. So what we do with the quadrants is we say, look, just write down a word, a couple of words, key bullets as you're going through, not copious notes. When the meeting is over, make sure you have time set aside to fill in the blanks. So now everything's the right framework, but you're still you're still present. But if you're having an hour-long meeting, you might forget some of the key piece of information, which is why we try and put in this framework. And it's different for everybody. But I, I just, you know, I'm a big fan of, look, take a small number of notes in a very organized manner, and then you'll fill out the blanks afterwards, and you'll be okay. Yeah. But that whole notion of what did you learn – becomes a becomes a great tool. So what's the best way for people to learn more about what you're doing and get in touch with you? Because I guarantee our listeners right now are thinking, well, gee, I know John's company is Amicus, and I know I can go to amicus.net, but is, is that the best place for them to learn more about what you're doing? Uh, well, if they, if they want to get a sense of what we're hearing and seeing um, from teams executing using the system, there, there's a Twitter account called uh, Amicus, which they can go at AMACUS. So if you go to twitter.com slash AMACUS, you can see there the kind of feedback that we're getting from uh, customers and, and the feedback they're getting from their customers, as well as the occasional example of the kind of results that they're seeing. Uh, my Twitter handle is jcousineau. Um, and we'll have I, all this in the show notes, so people yeah. don't have to worry about the spelling right now. Just pull it up in the show yeah. notes, and they'll be able to, uh, they'll yeah. be able to get that. And, and LinkedIn, obviously, is a good place to reach me as well if anybody's interested in having a conversation about this stuff. But I, my, my general observation would be imagine what it would be like if you could actually see and understand the, the game of sales performance in such a fresh light that you could get results others would look at and say that's not possible. Yeah. You know what? I love it, and I love the the Moneyball metaphor and the Fitbit analytics, I think, just paints a very clear picture of the type of information you can help people um, help people get insight into. So, John, I can't thank you enough for sharing your wisdom. And like I said, um, whether you like it or not, we're going to have to have you back. <laughs> <laughs> whether your audience likes it or not. <laughs> exactly. Because exactly. we know they should like it, damn it. And if they don't, we're going to keep forcing it on them until they figure it out. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like the cod liver oil of your consulting practice. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. All right, John, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time to subscribe and share this with your friends and colleagues. really makes a huge difference. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap of the key information I think you can apply to your business right away. First, I love John's notion of working backwards for better learning. Make sure that you are being curious and even, I like the idea of questioning the notion of taking copious notes, but instead, think about what you learned. The top performers are curious. So you're always thinking about what might work and what might not work, and think of your business development efforts as an ongoing experiment. And then at the end of the day, ask your team, so what did you learn today, instead of getting a summary of the number of phone calls they made or people they talked to. Remember, this show gets its direction from you, the listener. If there's a topic you want me to cover, if there's a guest I should have on, just drop me a note, ian at ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, 
and grow revenue in a way everyone can embrace, even your customer.